Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Down With D&D. I am one of your hosts, Sean Merwin. The other host, Mr. Teos Abadia, will be joining us in three, two, one. Hello. Thanks for connecting the magical interweb wires to bring me here today, Sean. That's right. I, it, was, it was tough work. I was out there on the uh, telephone pole uh, working all morning to get uh, the wires connected, but here we are. We are ready to talk D&D. And every time you lean over, you, you know, I can see your crack. It's, uh, it comes it's, with a job. This is true. This is job. true. It, it, that happens with age. <laughs> I thought it was a style. I don't know. Well, for me, it's both. <laughs> I make it look good, Teos. Well, good. speaking of old people, <laughs> I don't know. That's, it's really not really. I was trying to segue to sage advice, and I don't even know that. I mean, sages are old, <laughs> but I don't know. Look, Okay, so with with that tremendously adept segue from Teos, we're going to get into our news. And the big news this week was the Sage Advice was updated, including a ton of errata and rulings. Some interesting, some quite arcane in the sort of when does that ever come up sense of the word. But hey, it's there, so why not? I have already done my job, my duty as a gamer, and pestered Jeremy Crawford on Twitter with a clarification yes. of one of these clarifications. Yep, you, you have earned your <laughs> pester Jeremy Crawford badge, uh, your gamer Boy Scout badge. <sighs> Excellent. So what did you pester him about? Uh, so it is this one. That it's actually, I think if it's not the last thing, it's really close to it. It's The question is, can you gain the magical bonus of a plus two shield if you're holding the shield without taking an action to don it. And I think okay. any one of us would have said, no, dude, what are you trying yeah. to do? And instead yeah. the answer is yes, but only the magical plus two, which says you gain it when holding the shield. You gain okay. the sh shield's base armor class bonus, which is plus two, only right. if you use your action to don the shield as normal. So then I said, wait, so can my wizard just sort of hold a shield in one hand and get a plus two magical shield bonus? And apparently, according to the rules, yes, yes, you can. Because that's because, what this is currently saying. Yeah. And, and of course, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, obviously, it makes sense if you are donning the shield, if you are wielding it as a shield right. and you're proficient with it, you would get that plus two bonus for having a shield. Um, it's the magical bonus that we're talking right. about here, the extra plus two. And yeah, it, I, I, it sounds like to me that when they made the when they made the original rule, they said hold rather than wield or don or, um, you know, what, what whatever it would be where you would actually be using it as a shield. And they didn't feel like changing the, that wording. So they just said, sure, <laughs> go ahead. It's really, um, yeah. So, you know, beware of giving your party too many magical shields because they're all just going to hold it. Or, you know, in theory, I don't know what holding means. Could you strap it to right. your back? Like in the AD&D days, we used to do that, right? We would like, you would say that you had a shield strapped to your back. So if something attacked you from behind, you could claim that bonus because yes, there was no wheel, bonds, you know, proficiency, whatever. So, right. And so maybe can you do that? You know, can your wizard like put one on their back, strapped to their backpack, and you get the magical plus two from it? Right. Yep. And luckily, D&D &D is a <laughs> game that you can, you know, unless you're playing some sort of official uh, campaign, you can rule any way you want. And my rule is... A heck to the no. You do not get your plus two magical shield bonus Amen. by uh, strapping it to your feet and being pulled around in the snow like a sled. You know, but that um, scene with Legolas, is that canon for D&D &D where he rides the shield? Because it seems that's to true. Help. Anyway. If he was a if he was if that was a plus two magical shield, uh, maybe that's why he could get be missed by so many orcs and other enemies. Yeah. Uh, so there are a couple of other, you know, can I go over a few quickly? Yeah, let's do that. So magical darkness blocks dark vision only if the rules text for that particular thing says that it does. So the darkness spell yeah. says that you can't see with dark vision. And I think that yeah. caused all of us to say, well, that's what magical darkness does. But apparently it's only yeah. this specific instance that says that and does that. So you could have 
you know, if a room just said like, this is magically dark, but isn't the darkness spell, that does not mean it obstructs dark vision. We would have to say so in writing for that room to convey okay. that, which is interesting. My question then would be what other magical darkness is there in the rules other than the darkness spell? Yeah, I don't know. I've tried to figure out when it would come up. Um, I, I'm sure yeah. there are creatures that give out an aura of darkness, say. Yeah, something like uh, that. And and maybe that's where this ruling is necessary. Yeah, it could be. But but it's interesting because I just think that, you know, that spell has probably caused us all to think that just, just that's a quality of darkness. You can't see and it doesn't. Right. Dark vision, it's magical. Um, but now we learn that, well, you have to actually look at that particular wording to see what it says. It also means that as writers, we have to update our wording if we want that to happen. True. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Does casting a spell while taking a short rest interrupt the rest? Why, yes, it does. Uh, according to the rules that, uh, that govern short rests, you can only do things like eating, drinking, reading, and tending to wounds. So therefore, uh, anything more than that, which includes spellcasting, would not allow you to complete your short rest. That's surprising. I wouldn't have thought that casting a spell is strenuous, but okay, yeah, yeah. Well, again, it's it's that it's that balance between what makes sense mechanically and what makes sense sort of in the narrative that you're playing in your head. Yeah. Which which, which begs the question: Can you set up guards? Uh, during a short rest because guarding actively guarding i would say is more strenuous than eating drinking reading or tending to wounds um you know you're you're concentrating you're focused you're listening you're you're moving around um so yeah of course i you know the way i drink uh (laughs) that's a strenuous activity so that's uh you know it's you are a professional i am don't try that at home folks uh, so there you go. That answers yeah. that. And it sort of redefines what it means to take a short rest. Yeah, it does. At least for some people. Well, and I've, I've seen this wording before and wondered about it, right? This whole, like, you know, not strenuous. What is strenuous? And before I sort of felt like it was just, it was so loose a description that it's just up to me to decide. But now we're going to go yeah. and say, casting a spell, you can never do that one. Um, then, I, then it kind of makes you think, well, what else is like casting a spell? Because I, I didn't think casting light was strenuous. You know what I mean? Like, right. And so I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Um, there are also a number of like bard type abilities that I would think right. like playing music isn't that more strenuous than eating, drinking, reading, and tending to wounds? But but those things clearly are meant to be done while uh, you know. Right. Well, I mean, the, the whole the whole point of song of rest is that you do it while you're resting. Right. I guess so it that, does specifically that, say so, but it man. right. I mean, that by by logic, you you are saying you, this is this is what you are doing while you are taking a short rest. So therefore, you can do it while you're taking a short rest. The next one is: Can I cast animate dead on the humanoid shaped corpse of an undead creature, such as a zombie or a ghast? And it says no. It only works on the corpses of creatures that have the humanoid creature type. Mm-hmm. I find that sort of so. Now, yeah. Do they mean? If I kill a ghast, now I can't animate it? Is that what they're saying? Correct. Huh. Because it is no longer a humanoid. It is an undead. And the corpse just a... I don't think a cor- I guess the corpse still has a type is the idea. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... I think it's splitting hairs. I mean, I could see what you were saying is while they're attacking, if you cast animate dead, sure. but... They're already animated, so I, yeah. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means can I can I animate creatures that are undead after we re-kill them? This begs and, for an encounter in, in a Acquisitions Incorporated sequel where yeah. we would have a necromancer who is urging everyone to recycle their undead and trying to find ways yes. to do it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you do, deposit your skeleton here <laughs> for a five uh, copper piece. Yeah. A refund it keeps trying Absolutely. to you know find ways to make it work uh another animate is this animate objects does casting animate objects during a time stop spell end the time stop and the answer is no but commanding them with your bonus action does and i like that right it, it follows up with the whole idea of the time stop you can't do things that are like offensive that are going to hurt so as long as you don't mm-hmm. command them but you can power them up so that's kind of a fun extra option to keep in mind 
for your big bads that can cast time stop is they can animate a bunch of objects, get them all ready to go, and then use the bonus action to trigger them attacking right at the end of the time stop. There you go. I am taking notes down for my high high level adventures. Yeah. So if, if a spell caster is affected by slow and takes two turns to finish casting a spell, what happens if their target has moved out of range or out of sight? And the answer is you choose those targets of your spell when you complete casting, not when you start casting. So that that clears up that little rule of uh, it only comes into play when you have to take you know more than one turn to uh, to do something. But they're clarifying that you can choose your targets at the end. Yeah, cool. Um, can a creature that burrows grapple a target and drag them into the ground by borrowing? That's one I've often wondered about, actually, because I love mm -hmm. swallowing grappling characters. No, a borrowing creature can drag another creature with them only if they have the ability to leave a tunnel behind. So like the purple worm specifically says it has the tunneler trait, and it can therefore grab a, drag, a grappled creature into a tunnel it creates when borrowing. But an earth elemental does not have that, so it just kind of creates loose earth and moves around. It can't drag a creature into the ground with it. Yeah. And that that fixes the problem of what happens when you get dragged into the ground, but there's no tunnel there. <laughs> yeah. Do you start suffocating? Right. right. How do you how do people get to you? They don't have to because Can't burrowing creatures, unless they have that tunneling ability, uh, do not are not able to drag you through solid ground. Uh, can you get? Oh, we did the the shield yeah. one. Oh, you want to do the best, the, your favorite? <laughs> so this is my favorite. What happens if I'm polymorphed or wild-shaped into a creature with fewer than 100 hit points, Sean, and then I'm targeted by power word kill? Now, that's a great question. I think since you have a less than 100 hit points, you die. Yeah, that's the answer. You die. That's pretty good. You die. That just so feels like Jeremy Crawford. Yep, so don't get wild-shaped or polymorphed into a creature with fewer than 100 hit points, uh, I believe that's the answer to that. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Uh, we also got new errata from for Curse of Strahd, Ghosts of Saltmarsh, Storm King's Thunder, Tomb of Annihilation, and Volo's Guide to Monsters. Do you want to tick those off yeah. on the list here? Uh, Curse of Strahd, you, you know, if you've been following the D&D speak, there are a number of changes to the Stani and Esmeralda's prosthetic. Those are now distributed in the errata documents, so you can move those over there as well. Uh, there are a few very minor corrections, nothing, nothing that you couldn't live without other than that. Um, the Ghosts of Saltmarsh, generally minor changes, but there is one really big one, which is the Sea Lion Staff Lock was like a pretty pitiful creature, and now it, it is potent. So they vastly updated what the Sea Lion is. Um, these changes are not in D&D Beyond, at least as of like two days ago. Um, they, may, they probably will be soon. Maybe they already are. I'm not sure, but they were not a few days ago. So I was able to compare. The sea line got way, way buffer. Um, mm -hmm. so Storm King's Thunder, very tiny minor text cleanup. And then, you know, like they made crag cats are monstrosities now, and they have a speed of 30 in line with yep. Isondale. Yep. Tomb of Annihilation, very, very minor text adjustments. Volos does have some meaty stuff, changes to various races, like kobolds no longer two point, lose two points of strength. Orcs no longer lose a point of int. So this is in line with other books that had done this, um, including mm -hmm. we had orcs, um, and I think it was in Wildmount that removed that penalty. Um, orc trait of menacing is replaced with a new one called primal intuition, granting proficiency in two sort of nature-based skills. Some other changes like that as well. So Volos is really, of all of these, the one that's the meatiest and most important one to notice because you might have players that actually want to make characters or already have characters with those. Yep. For Adventures yep. League, all, it was announced that if you are affected by these, you get to change it. Yep. And all of that errata is available on the D&D website uh, under its the Sage Advice Compendium 10 2020. So you can find all that uh, right from the Wizards website. So tell me about this Dungeons and Dragons annual. So this is kind of interesting. Um, two different people, uh, Daniel Kwan and Susie Ray, shared pictures sort of saying, ah, we can finally talk about this. Here is this Dungeons and Dragons annual 2021, which will be in Europe only. And it's a hardcover book, has a sort of Hydro 74 style cover, I assume done by 
actually by them. Um, and the picture they showed covered podcasts. So it's one of those funny things, you know, here's a book on paper talking about what you can find online. Uh, but it, it had in it, you know, the, the particular shown the, uh, illustration that was shown had all these different types of, you know, here's the acquisition thing podcast and here's, and I forget which all, what all the different ones were there. Um, but Susie Ray added that it has puzzles, a story, 200 puns, everything you need to know to set up your first game. It's going to be released in October in Europe only. Um, it's sort of, it, it's interesting. It felt a little bit like one of those old TSR product catalogs, you know, that were so fun to page through. Right, right. Uh, and, huh. I, you know, it's like, wow, why are they making this and only in Europe? It's so interesting. Yeah, that's strange. I mean, when I saw Dungeons and Dragons Annual 2021, the first thing I thought of was they used to put out like the Dragon Annual from yeah. Dragon Magazine. Yeah. And I was like, huh, why, why are they doing that? Because they're really, I mean, there's Dragon Plus, right. which is which is all well and good, but it's it's not the same as the old Dragon Magazines. So, yeah, this is just, it's, it's interesting. Um, maybe they're trying to expand their European market. And so offering this as a, as a way to get people who might be interested in D&D, give them their first taste. And, and with the explosion of online play and podcasts and streams, um, just bringing that into the consciousness of, of the European gaming population. That's interesting. So I'm going to have to have one of my friends in Europe pick this up for me. All right. And then five years from now, when we get together in person again, I can get a guy after the long (laughs) swim across the Atlantic. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Might be a little waterlogged. Hopefully it is buoyant. And the first season 10 adventure for the adventures league is now up on the DMs guild and it has reached gold seller status. So you can find that on the DMs guild. It's D D a L 10 dash zero zero. It's been out for a bit now and it will get you from first level through third level. If you play all four missions and gives you a quick introduction to playing in Icewind Dale. And, you know, we're going to get into this when we do our Icewind Dale review, but I like that this adventure assumes you're not already in Icewind Dale and it serves as a way to get you there. And mm-hmm. I like that. I like people approaching a new area. Um, so if you want to add that to your kind of rhyme Icewind Dale experience, this is a way you can do it. But also because it deals with the subject of awakened animals can be a way to bring you into that side of the story in a nice way. Mm-hmm. Congratulations yeah, on uh, gold already. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, it's done very well. I'm very pleased with that. And, you know, thank you to all, everyone who's bought it and who's DM'd it at either these online conventions that have been going around or uh, for your home game. So I appreciate it. I hope everyone's enjoying it. Um, but it does bring up that question of how to introduce a campaign and it's 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 one that we can talk about in a few minutes when we get into Icewind Dale but it's always it's always hard to juggle between starting in the known or going from the unknown into the known and let letting the players learn these things as they go because if their characters are already from Icewind Dale you spend a lot of time explaining what their character would already know, but you're still having to take the time to explain it. Yeah. So I tend to think players don't often know it. So going over it for the character or going over it for the player, even if the character knows it is still helpful. The opposite is the worst, right? If you assume your character knows all about this place, so I don't tell you about it. Now we're not playing the same game the way we should. Yeah. And, but role playing wise, I always prefer to have the character and the player be on the same level. That's yeah. why I love starting with the unknown. If you're going into a strange new region, right? right? Going into Chult, I didn't want characters to be from Chult. Right. I wanted them to experience this thing just as their characters would, with a new, a fresh set of eyes and and a fresh set of wonder. And and the same same with the uh, same with this. I I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. Jobs. jobs 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 you know every week we we report on the news and it seems like for the last three weeks we've like it's amazing how many full-time role-playing game jobs are opening up and every week there's more 
uh, Watsy now has two more jobs opening specifically in the D&D arena, an associate game designer for D&D products and an associate development editor uh, to rework and revise manuscripts. So they're bringing more designers in and more bringing more editing in house. Yeah. Um, uh, Chris Perkins said something on Twitter like, this only comes up once in a dragon's lifetime for associate game designer. And yeah. I guess, I don't know, I feel like a couple have been hired recently, but but maybe, I don't know, it was interesting. I thought that was an interesting comment. Either way, this is another of those opportunities that if, if this is your dream, you know, this yeah. is this is a, a cool thing to apply to for sure. Yeah, and, and because it's associate, they're not necessarily looking for someone who already has 20 years experience and in you know game development yeah this is this is a sort of an entry level game designer job i'm sure they're looking for someone with experience but it doesn't necessarily have to be the same experience you would need if it was uh you know a a full-time regular or lead game designer and and monty cook is hiring a managing editor um and at about a million words a year give or take um (laughs) Yeah, you, uh, you'll cool. be jumping right in. Yeah, they say they produce around 750,000 words per year at the company and they want you to make them even better. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that's always interesting is when someone leaves a job, what they say about it, right? And uh, we just had the person who's the community manager, Darcy, uh, leave. And, you know, if you watch, if you read her, th- her, her thread and, and her posts on, on these things, you know, it's like they're, they're having a tearful goodbye for each other, right? Right. And she's sad to leave and they're sad to see her leave. And that tells you a lot about the company and, and the kind of, you know, what it's going to be like to work there. And so that's a kind of interesting way that when you're looking at a job, one of the things you can look at is how do yeah. people behave when they leave, right? And if they leave happy like that, that's a good sign, right? So Monty yeah. Cook is hiring a managing editor. I think that's a, a super exciting game to have, a job to have at Monty Cook Games. They're also hiring a community relations coordinator and an academic inter- intern for the winter spring 2021 period. Um, they are known for being one of those few RPG companies that pays well, that has retirement plans. Um, so it, it's this is a really impressive opportunity as well. Yeah, and they, they're in Seattle as well, correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. So I think some of these, they, yes, but they are fully remote. And so I believe all of these positions support you being wherever you want to be, which is a nice advantage. All of them for Monty Cook games. Yeah. All the Monty Cook games. Not, not, no, not the Wizards ones. I think the Wizards, you still have to be, even though they may be working remotely now, the idea is that you've got to be in Seattle to maintain yeah. this. And, and that's, that's the huge thing right now, right? <laughs> for, for everyone. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, game design included. So tell me about Rhyme uh, and Gregerson's new Kickstarter. Uh, So actually what I was saying here is she is one of the authors of Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Oh, yeah. And Gregerson. And she's also done a number of really neat uh, DM skilled book materials, uh, products. And she has just launched a Kickstarter that ends November 4th. It's called Aralyn's Stolen Notes to Vilea. And it is actually a reprint of something she put out two years ago. Um, and it is a 5e campaign setting molded by sin, virtue, and monstrous corruption. And the basic concept here is that there are entities known as aspects that are more powerful than gods, and they resemble the seven sins and seven virtues. They have challenged the gods at various points, been locked away. Apparently, they've gotten out. They can corrupt creatures, though that corruption can be uh, over, you know, re- restored if you do it correctly. And the PCs, uh, they're kind of two bits of kind of what the campaign is like that are shown. One is that you join guilds, sort of the more mortal side of things, and the guilds sound interesting. But you also are a champion to the gods. And so over time, you're proving yourself and gaining powers and clearly traveling the realms. There's a lot here, new races, over 20 subclasses. So link is in the short show notes. It's called Erland's Stolen Notes to Vallea. Nice. Speaking of Kickstarters, Jeff Stevens on October 6th. So a couple of days prior to the one day after we record yeah. two days before the show goes up, uh, this will be launched on Kickstarter. It's 15 short 5e adventures with new art, custom art and maps, new creatures, new magic items, 
um, suggestions on how to incorporate Tome of Beasts and Creature Codex monsters. Uh, the team of writers are a variable who's who of uh, your game and adventure writers for 5e, like Cat Kruger, M.T. Black, James Intracasso, Cat Stevens, Sly Flourish, uh, Greg Marks, Tony Brislow, many, many more. And this is, again, called Adventures of the Pot-Bellied Kobold. And he also released, Jeff Stevens, uh, his company also released Encounters in the Savage Arctic very recently, which you can find on the DMs Guild. So one new release on the DMs Guild and then one new Kickstarter coming out soon. Jeff Stevens, I think most people know him by now, but he is at that empty black level of consistently putting out good products, consistently collaborating with other people in good ways. Super nice guy to meet at conventions. Um, you and I have both met him. Um, he is, you know, one of those guys who just really loves the, loves the game, loves writing, wants to make this their full-time job, right? And so this is an opportunity to help with that with Adventures of the Pot Village. Cold. Yeah. Yep. It's it's a good melding of good business sense and good person and good uh good quality product. Yeah. You know, he's got it figured out uh pretty well. So he, he's not going to lose a great deal of money, but still provide a good pay for the writers and a good product for the consumers. Let's stay on uh, Kickstarters. We can do it, Sean. Oh, okay. Another Kickstarter that's out there is the Three Musketeers graphic novel Kickstarter. So while it's not specifically D&D, it is being done by two people near and dear to our hearts, uh, Scott Fitzgerald Gray and Aviva Orr. Uh, Scott was the editor, uh, managing editor for our Acquisitions Incorporated book. And Aviva was the artist that did some absolutely spectacular art capturing the feel of Uh, Acquisitions Incorporated. And so they're combining their talents to create this Three Musketeers graphic novel, a classic tale, but not exactly the way you remember it. So they're updating the the novel written uh, in French, of course, and then translated. Um, They're updating it for the modern day sensibility and storytelling. And so that's what Scott is doing uh, for his part. And Aviva is adding her, her uh, artistic talents to illustrate the story. And so if you've never read Three Musketeers, this might be a good way for you to take in that story. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's it's an old novel originally written in French. So it's got a sensibility that might be foreign to a modern audience. You mean it has a certain genre de Yes, exactly, exactly. So, so this uh, might be a good way to capture the spirit of that story with a modern twist. Yeah, it took me about 0.2 seconds to back this. Yeah, I mean, it, only it, because it was I, a note. I wanted to take in the whole Kickstarter page before I hit back. Otherwise, I would have done it faster, you know, but I mean, right, this is right. for sure. I mean, just wonderful. I, I know that these are two people who just create quality. They ooze imagination they are superb human beings and uh, you know i couldn't not back this fast enough just for those reasons but also i really like what they're doing with retelling this story and you kind of should visit the three musketeers um graphic novel kickstarter page so you can just read through how they explain to you what this is doing differently and and how exciting it is so highly recommended absolutely uh, you want to talk to me about Zargoth's Tome of Familiars, speaking of Kickstarters. Yeah, we've covered a lot of Kickstarters. The last one is really just like, do you like adorable familiars? <laughs> and even if you <laughs> Why, don't... Yes, I do, Teos. Well, there might be more for you anyway, but most of us probably would. And if, and if you go to the, the Zargoth's Tome of Familiars, which ends November 5th, uh, you can right up at the very beginning, it says, you know, click here for your free PDF. And if you look at the free PDF, you'll it's kind of like going to the the, you know, pet shop and you immediately want to go, can I take it home? You know, there's like a cute little basilisk whelp and there's a blink dog pup and a displacement cub and you name it. Right. And it goes further than that because it's not just like, here's cute familiars though. I mean, that's good enough for everybody, but uh, you, you, there's a system by which you can take feet. So it becomes more ingrained into the theme of your character. So you're getting these through a feet process and there are categories of things like, you know, if you're an artificer, you can get a clockwork spider. If you're a necromancer, a floating skull. There's even symbiotic hosts like the spine worm. 
for the alchemist in you, the green ooze, like there's a lot here. It, it looks really fun. It's all 5e, you know, 5e stat blocks and, uh, yep. you know, very interesting to see how this whole feat system works, but it's certainly, you know, I mean, oh, did I mention the flailing snailing? <laughs> the flailing snailing. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Get your, you know, flail snail miniature. Nice. So that was our Kickstarter portion of the program. Uh, a couple more things to discuss. Um, a good friend of ours and a friend of the show, DM David, gave us another blog post. This one on illusionism and false choices, which, you know, for adventure designers and campaign uh, designers, DMs, it's a very important topic. And I'm going to let Teo speak to this one as well. Yeah, David gives an example of a high road and a low road and how a DM might set this up that regardless of which way you go, you meet the ogre that's on the road, right? The characters feel they had a choice. They actually didn't. They may not know that unless they go like, hey, now let's go the other way. Um, but you, while they may feel there was choice, there was no actual input impact to the choice. And this is what he terms illusionism. And he says, you know, this is fine. Like, it's not bad because it's, it's better than nothing. There wasn't just one road. You got two roads out of it. You made a choice and you felt like maybe there was a, you know, I made an ogre this way. Um, but he cautions us as to when we should use this technique, when it can go too far. And so this is, this is really a great read. I really liked thinking through this. And I actually found myself applying this to Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. And as we do this deep dive, you know, which of these things, which of these elements we're looking at are actual choices and to what extent do we feel as characters playing through them and as players playing our characters through them that we really are making choices that have real impacts. Yeah. Uh, so you can find that at dmdavid.com. That's his blog. It's Faking Choices for D&D Players. So <laughs> check that out. Uh, give it a read. Let us know on our forums what, what you think of what he said yeah. and how you handle such a thing in your games and now of course we will end with our teos talks minis miniature corner miniature corner <laughs> i don't know uh so t tell us tell us what's up with whiz kids here two really quick things well first i got a giant bunch of miniatures so I, i'm i'm in miniature corner right now but uh one thing i did not get because it was announced just recently there's a new adult black dragon figure 70 bucks we're 9.4 inches tall. And there was a period of time when we used to bemoan that Whiskers was only putting out these sort of frail looking tiny dragons. And then we got nothing like the old gargantuan dragons that we had had during the third edition days. Well, they, someone there heard this and yeah. they are now, it's an onslaught of big beefy dragons that are being released. And the black dragon is the latest. I am down with this. Bring it my way. I had just picked up the <laughs> sapphire dragon and I picked up the white dragon. Those are both big, beefy, good sculpts. Uh, I think on Twitter, I'll be sharing those, if not on my blog. It, it's pretty cool. Uh, the next piece is really, you know, I'm still, my brain's still processing this. WizKids, who makes these plastic minis, is now releasing yeah. two papercraft sets for Icewind Dale-themed houses. Uh -huh. It's really yeah. hard to conceptualize because the pictures are actually 3D rendered sculpts using the same kind of visuals as always. So they look plastic on their website because it's okay. this 3D rendered image, right? But right. apparently they're papercraft. And so it's 16 bucks for what they call the lodge, which is a building. I don't think you can go inside it. I think the idea is you just, you know, you take these probably plastic coated paper pieces and you assemble them and you look, you've got a building and your managers can move around it. Uh, $30 gets you the 10 town set, which has three buildings, an apothecary, a tavern, and a residence. Uh, you can check out the WizKids, shop.wizkids.com site to look at them. But again, the pictures make it very hard to know what this final paper version really will look like. So stay tuned. Hmm, interesting. Uh, a good friend of the show, old school DM Randy Farmer, yeah. is super into paper craft. So, you know, we've had him on the show before to talk about papercraft. And one of the questions I asked was, is papercraft a thing that we might see from companies? Um, and, you know, this was a couple of years back. So we, uh, in fact, are to the point now where there are enough consumers lined up that 
maybe papercraft is a way to go. Very interesting. And with those announcements and news, we are now to our main topic, a continuation of our look into Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frostbaden. We have taken, yes, we have taken our time getting through the first parts of the book. And so now we begin on chapter one called The Ten Towns. And strangely enough, we don't start exactly with the Ten Towns in this chapter. Uh, we start with a section called Running This Chapter, which for me was actually very good. Uh, I was pleased to see that they took the time to, just in a few words, give some bullet points on running this chapter. So if you are a brand new dungeon master, uh, and you might be lost with this big tome in front of you and so many words and an index and a table of contents that seem to jump all over the place. Um, how do you, how do we get started? And it tells you, read the rest of the section called 10 Towns Overview that will tell you about these 10 towns. So we're going to start in the 10 towns. So here's what you need to know on a very high level about the 10 towns. Then it tells you to determine which town you're going to start in. So it, uh, the adventure assumes that you're going to be in one of these 10 towns. And we've already talked about how we prefer kind of a getting there adventure or a getting there, at least a scene that moves you into the adver uh, uh, area you're going to adventure. But this is starting you right there in the 10 towns. Um, there is a table where you can actually roll randomly to go to one of the towns, or you can choose from them based on the descriptions that you've uh, just read. And then you can decide where you're going to go from there. If you're going to start with one of the two starting quests, or if you're going to start with a quest that's introduced in uh, one of the 10 towns, because each town has its own separate starting quest that you can use. Uh, and then Whenever a character arrives in another town for the first time, there's a nutshell description that you can give the characters uh, so they can get acclimated to this new place before they uh, get into the quest itself. Yeah. So how do you like this system? Like I, I'm with you that I totally love the way it's written. I think this is very nicely written. Mm -hmm. It's a good way to, to help uh, DM get their grounding. But what do you feel about the overall approach of, there are two starting quests you could choose either to start with, or you could choose the, the quest that's in the town and pick any town or even roll randomly. I, I like it for the simple reason that it, sh it should show new DMs. It's, it's, this is all about new DMs for me, right? Experienced DMs already know how to make changes to what they want to run. So if you give a new DM or if you give an experienced DM a linear adventure, they're going to do whatever they want with it because they know how. If you give them a, an event board, right, a quest board kind of adventure, they know how to put those pieces together and make a campaign for the most part. And I'm talking about a DM who's, you know, either been a player for a long time, so has seen DMs do it, or has DMed for long enough that, that they understand how to put their own campaigns together. So this is all about new DMs. And for me, it gets across the point that there is no one right way to run a campaign, but it's not so overwhelming that they're out in the middle of nowhere because it says here are these two quests and two starting quests. Those two quests are not pages long. You know, they're relatively short, relatively concise, pretty simple to understand. Uh then there's this one extra quest. If you feel like doing that. So this assumes that a new DM is going to read through, the, um, you know, the, the starting town information and pick a town and then look at one of those quests. If one of those quests are too complicated, which some of them might be for a brand new DM, they can always choose a different one or they can always go back and just use um, cold hearted killer. The first quest or nature spirits, the second uh, starting quest. So I'm, I'm okay with it. I think it, it does push the envelope a bit, but I don't think it's so overwhelming that, that a, a reasonably able 
reader can't follow what's going on. How does that, how does that strike you? I'm, I'm a little bit on the other side. Um, and, and, okay. you know, one of the things is, you know, what's our, our job here is, is sort of like, we're reviewing it uh, critically, right? We're, we're analyzing this and I'm, I'm for sure a super analytical person. And when I look at this, uh, I think that kind of our job for this podcast is sort of say, Hey, as a DM might, like, what might you rent, run into what factors do you need to consider? You know, that's sort of what we're doing is our job. So let me pause and say that I think, this is, this is a wonderful adventure. And anybody who worked on this should be really happy with it. It's awesome. When I put on my cr critical brain space, uh, this is fine. And, and I like what you're saying. You know, I can buy into that. But I tend to think, and maybe I'm just more of a linear person, that I would rather put my energy into a narrative that's more strongly crafted and put together. And that for a new player, a new DM would not possibly result in it being shaky and tough because I, this reminds me of someone who was telling me about when they started DMing 5e they used Curse of Strahd and they said I would review the spot where they were going and then they would very quickly decide to go to another place and I hadn't prepped that and I would realize oh my god there's all this going on and I need to now understand this other place and they would throw them off every time right and this, it feels simple. It feels like, hey, all you've got to do, DM, is read up on this town. But it's very easy for that town to be a really short town. And or they're maybe they're on one of these starting quests of cold hearted killer nature spirits, which are sort of a travel around one. Maybe, maybe not. It's, it's kind of complicated. And so you right. you could easily have not prepped for what you end up having to run. And now you feel like, oh God, what am I doing? Or the quest didn't last as long as you thought it would. Or maybe it goes on forever and you're like, wow, I, I, you know, this is not what I was expecting. Or I'm on this cold-hearted killer track or nature spirits track, but there's there are things here that lead to the town's quest, but it told me to run one. What, you know, there's sort of, it's open nature can be conflicting for new DM. It, it can, it can. And my, I agree with that. I agree with that. What I want to have my, text do is train the person reading it to get better mm -hmm. and so that's why i like this uh, i'm not saying it's done perfectly but i like this getting right out in the open here is a path you can take i i almost wish i had said you may get off that path by the choices of your players. So read ahead, read, make sure you understand at least the beginning of different quests in different towns. Um, but I, I don't want the, even a starting DM, I don't want to put on this path and do them the disservice of thinking that every adventure is going to run as smoothly as it can every time even if it's super linear because that's not how the game works right sure. that's not how that's players. not how you players work that's not how the rules work even um it does take you as the dm some imagination and some improv right right from the start uh so here are the tools that we can offer you uh be prepared to use that hammer uh, as a chisel, if you have to, because that's what players are going to throw your way. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I, I think if I were to make a recommendation here, what I would tend to think is I would pick a town to start in that is not too shallow. This is this what I do, if I, what I would recommend to DMs. And others may have different recommendations. Pick a, a town that is, you know, either big or medium so that you'll be there a bit, to let you get your grounding in, give you some time to develop the place. Start with whatever the quest is in that town so that you're in that town for a bit. They won't immediately leave it. And then as you're there, give them one of these other starting quests so that they have a reason to travel. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if necessary, doctor it so that you will slowly do that other one traveling as well. Um, yep. that would be my recommendation for this. Yeah. And that makes it, 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 it compromise between the two, maybe. 
Yeah, I think I think that would be a good that would have been a good compromise would have been, you know, the next bullet point in the running this chapter section would be if this is your first time DMing or if you want a pre-planned way, start in Bryn Shander and run this run that quest first, then then go to cold hearted killer, then go to nature spirits, and that will give you a good path to get your characters to second level without having them being too uh, tempted to go to any other places. Yeah. Part of what's going on here too is you know, we talked about this last time that the, the way it works is when you do your first quest, you're going to gain a level mm-hmm. and that's going to let you handle other things. And, and when you run just, I think it's like four or five, like then you're done. So, and there are 10 towns and two starting quests. So there's way more that you, to be done than you can actually do. And so the, another thing for the DMs is you want to kind of read over this to see what are the must-run quests, the ones that really jive with you, right? That you go, I want to run this one. I definitely don't want to skip this so that you can point your players to that. And then the ones that you like the least or that you know aren't in your comfort zone, you can just, those will never show up. Right. You're the DM. You don't have to put these quest hooks in front of them, right? Sure. The, little, the little NPC with the uh, exclamation point above his head yeah. doesn't need to appear. Uh, it's as easy as that. I think so. Can I just say that you just made me realize someone should sell, I don't know who it is, it's Wizkid, somebody, a little hat with an exclamation point that would be yeah. an official D&D one, right? That you could put That's on when it's like, yeah. hey, players, don't miss it. You're talking to this NPC that's the quest giver. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, if I'm reading box text, I put on one hat. And if it's time for initiative, I put on another. I love that idea. One with James and Ducasso's face for box text. <laughs> there you go wow you know i'm, I'm i we should start manufacturing those hats <laughs> that's it and, uh, and today is the day our business began yes you all witnessed it here Merwin, all right, so the next <laughs> the next town or the next section says starting town and that's got the table where you can roll a d10 surprisingly with 10 towns uh and come up with a random starting town uh, and a random starting quest from that town, or you can just choose uh, amongst them. What is what is this fascination with with tables? <laughs> it is sort of interesting, right? I, I'm not a random table person at all, but uh, yeah. I mean, not I, I do like it for wacky things, right? If I want to know, like you know, which of my limbs goes strange, then I'm, I'm all for a random table. Uh, right. But I would I would look over these, and, and I, like I'd probably pick East Haven as a starting town. Okay. There's a lot going on. There are several quests. Uh, there, there's a formal quest, and there are a bunch of sort of little interesting sidebar things, which strangely would not grant you XP because you're sort of leveling up after a quest, but they're not quests. But whatever, there's lots to do here. And yep. so I would probably pick a, a place like East Haven that has a lot going on. You get grounded in it. Or the other thing I might do is choose... Um, good mead where if you want to go with the political route you know your characters could actually become politicians and and yeah. i think if you if you wanted to make a linear adventure you could actually be like start in good mead become elected maybe mm-hmm. or fail and then right. the rest of the campaign could be colored by that right you're either now responsible sure. for this town so you're doing all these things out of that or you lost and because of how you lost you're now kind of still responsible for that town and that would guide you through and everything. In fact, I'd have the person attend a meeting between all the speakers, right? Yeah. And hear about all the problems that are going on. It would really get the stakes going, right? So that's true. Yeah, I would. I would never roll randomly to see where I start. That's me. <laughs> yeah, I, that's, same with me. Uh, but you know, people lo- seem to love tables. So you know, randomness is is a big part of role playing games. So yeah. I guess if, if you're into role-playing games, you might have that spirit already. Yeah, and it's interesting to compare this, you know, versus something like um, in Dragon of Ice Fire Peak, where there's like that job board, right? And you see like three things that have been shoved out the door and you get to decide which are the ones you want to take and, and then come back and see if it changes, right? So this is a different model than that. Less linear, yeah. more open. Yep, yep. And... Uh, you know, and then there's nothing wrong again with linear adventures. Uh, sometimes they are the easiest way to run uh, a, a complicated or involved narrative story. Or if you're new uh, to DMing, it's 
it's you know there's not much of an easier way to prep than knowing exactly which encounters you're going to be running in in which exact order and, and whichever way you play it the important part is to realize to think through why your campaign um should why your campaign is being run way or the other and make sure that you're not overlooking the other side right so if you if you're just sandboxing this don't be so sandboxy that the players have no merit of linking things together right it, it must still matter and and have an overarching story so it feels cool and heroic and, and important uh but if you're all linear don't make it feel like you're just on this total railroad and you have no options and can't affect right. any change right so read dm david's uh blog post on illusion yeah yes totally. yeah, that that will tell you exactly how to do it um, now we get a little uh info on character advancement what they suggest is uh advance to second level after completing your first quest advance to third after completing three more quests and then advance to fourth after completing five quests in the chapter so yeah um, it's after five quests you're at fourth level which is for a lot of people where the real power of your character blossoms uh, fourth and fifth level so that, that's what they suggest you don't have to follow that suggestion depending on how fast you tend to run uh how much how important it is for your players to advance versus just having the fun of role playing and and being in the, within the setting uh you may want to slow that down a lot and this is perhaps the biggest example we've seen of how wizards is turning away from experience points right like often it's yep. been uh it's clearly recommended that you not follow it and just deal but in here they're really like you know it doesn't matter if the quest was small or huge you know you faced off one monster and talked it down versus went through a whole keep and cleared it of bad guys doesn't matter that's that's a level either way right and yeah i mean if if you run the nature spirit starting quest it it, it literally could take you 10 minutes right um uh, unless you have the urge to to drag it out uh so you could be second level after 10 minutes of play uh following these and, and that's the, again there's nothing wrong with that uh i i do know that some players especially players that have played for a long time still sort of cling to this experience point uh wow. process and i i understand it i understand that you want to gain a reward for completing a an encounter well, I especially think, you know encounter. when i've looked on twitter when when folks have asked and, and this is never science but when folks have asked like hey do you like experience points it's actually a lot of people that like experience points mm -hmm. um yeah. i feel like you like i don't need them uh, i run campaigns with them and have been for it feels like forever uh but there are a lot of people that like experience points and so it's worth thinking about if you're a DM running this, this is so clearly divorced of experience points. Um, mm -hmm. You know, how can you keep your characters feel like they're rewarded, like things are coming their way? And, you know, maybe you just want to even say to them, like, hey, quests equals levels. That's your XP, get quests mm -hmm. done. You know, that's your sense of accomplishment or, or find something else. And they do give you a new mechanic, which is reputation. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's not necessarily a mechanic so much as a way of turning um, success into a role-playing feature. Um, so they, what they say is as characters complete their quests, their reputation spreads for better, or for worse, uh, they become known. So if you finish the quest for certain towns, the people will start treating you well. Um, they, they will respect you. They may give you free things. Whereas people from the other towns are like, you're the away team. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. You saved East Haven. What good does that do us here in Dugan's hole? None whatsoever. Thanks a lot. Losers. Um, so it's just, it's an interesting way to think about the narrative for me uh, to remember that as they gain levels they gain fame and fame is is a double-edged sword uh, it can be that in fantasy settings as much as it is in our real lives 
Well, this is thing where, you know, you could, if, if for those players that like experience sports, you know, maybe you'd create a sort of fake reputation system and you give them reputation points. Hey, everybody, you get a reputation point. Right. Yeah. What does that mean? The same thing it always you know, means in this as written, but, but you're, and maybe right. you just make a few more notes. And in fact, this is probably worth doing anyway, is to take this idea that's fairly loose and open and make yourself some actual notes as you're running the campaign that when they get to this town, the reputation needs to kick in, right? So this is my third mm -hmm. town, their third level. Um, here's what's happening and how they react to you. And, and then next time, here's how they react to you. And, and throw in some scenes with characters with NPCs that would, uh, that would reflect their reputation level. Right. And that's a good way to enhance role-playing without falling back on things like racial tensions, right? It's not oh, you're the orc and I'm a dwarf, so therefore I hate you. Uh, yeah. right? That's what we're trying to get rid of in the game. Yeah. But what you can say is, oh, you are that adventurer who uh, did this thing for that town. Well, now everyone's going to that blacksmith in that town. I'm the blacksmith in this town and I've just lost my income. Thanks a lot. Love it. Right? That That's a role-playing... Uh, hook that re relies on what the characters did not who the characters are which is i think what we're shooting for yeah so the next session gives you an overview of 10 towns i think probably we can just go over the towns when and when we're going through them individually um they give you more information here about dog sleds and axe beaks as mount options that as we said before are sort of a little strange and in, in why you choose dog sleds because they have to rest after an hour. Um, that winter survival gear is here. They talk a little bit about the town. Uh, one thing that's interesting is they change the lore in a, a few ways. This one I think is just maybe weird wording, but they say that Bryn Shander, the way they describe it sounds like Bryn Shander was the first one built when it's actually historically the last town that was built. Um, so depending on whether you care about those things, you can make a decision one way or the other. They also introduced yep. that most of the towns contain trace evidence of the immigrant cultures that birthed them. Uh, so Goodmead, for example, was originally founded by Cholton settlers, which is, wow, that's totally new. And that's cool. Right. Yep. So you'll see carvings, like Cholton carvings that you would normally find there uh, on the buildings of, of uh, Goodmead. And they get a snowflake system. Uh, so this is this rating for each town. What'd you think of this, Sean? I, I liked it. I think it's, you know, quick shorthand, uh, friendliness services and comfort. So I don't even need to read everything else. If I know that this town has a one snowflake friendliness, I know immediately how to start playing the NPCs. I don't even need to read any further. Um, services and comfort, same thing. You're looking for plate armor. Uh, well, not in a, not in any of these towns, unless they have a three, snowflake for service um and you know same thing for resting oh you're going to rest in a one snowflake comfort town uh you are probably not going to get a good night's sleep uh <laughs> yeah. you, you may you may need to make a constitution saving throw or suffer uh exhaustion because you're sleeping you know in in the attic of a building that has no heat yeah uh basically it's probably so you know i'll all of that's interesting. It's worth noting that the material in this book is less uh, extensive compared to the lore information that's in Legacy of the Crystal Shard. We talked about that mm -hmm. book, the D&D Next uh, Adventure that has an adventure book and a lore book. That setting book is actually more expansive. Uh, about four years or so, a minimum of four years have passed since that book. So it's not that long. Amazingly mm -hmm. huge changes have happened. Uh, due to this harsh weather. So some of the towns are like half the population they used to be. Yep. But uh, but you can get a lot of value out of that other book. So I do suggest folks pick that up. Yeah. And you, you have to remember too, that was a product that came out while the rules were still being rewritten. So they had to focus on something. They, they didn't necessarily want to focus too much on the rules. So yeah. going for the lore there is, is a, uh, you know, a, a filler, a good filler. And the, the, the last section we'll talk about today, um, before we get into the adventure quests themselves, is this idea of sacrifices to Aurel. I'm sorry, Aurel. Aurel. <laughs> uh, so I was personally surprised that this made it into the book. Yeah. 
um, because some towns uh, sacrifice food to the, the frost maiden. Uh, some sacrifice warmth. They won't light fires during certain times. But some towns, and surprisingly, the larger towns, yeah. they sacrifice people. And it's not necessarily the stereotypical B-movie, horrible uh, cleric to death god standing over the altar with a dagger. It's they tie them out in the, in the cold and just basically let them die or, or force them to wander off without cold weather clothing um, as a way to appease Oriel. And eh, human sacrifice, not, not something that I, I, I understand that's a trope. You know, it's, it's a trope that's been around forever. And it's one of those things probably better left unmentioned. Yeah. But it's also been, it's been four years since Heroes defeated Oriel. Like, man, four years later, we're sacrificing people to her again? Like, you know, we can do this, folks. Like, you know, they also, like, all right, Dugan's Hole is, you know, living without fires and just huddling for warmth. Why are the big towns not, why would you not want to do that? Or, or they're giving away food, right? Like, you know. Right. Why wouldn't the large town give away food? Seems like way I, I, better than killing off your people. Like, it's it's. I <clears> like <throat> it. I like it in this the political and social aspects of it. I like because we're going to have a lottery, and surprisingly, none of the wealthy, none of the powerful people or their families ever come up in this lottery. Yeah. So so there's that aspect that I think is fun to explore. Right. It, it's it's a good role playing thing. It's a good social thing. You can you can do some cool things with it. But it's the actual idea that good people are killing people for this reason just doesn't jive with the the ethos that we're trying to get get with in this game. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I would I would change this or or maybe have the threat that various towns are thinking about it, but it is strange to me that sort of the friendlier, more established town is considering sacrifice. And then on the far end of the scale, you're giving away food and just three years after you beat oral, something about that whole. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's, it's also, well, it goes along with what I just said, right? It's, it's a good story starter, but it's not a good story finisher, right? You want to be the characters that, oh, they just sent this poor sap out into the Arctic to, to die, uh, closing the doors on him, not letting him back in. We're, let's go save him. Right. Right. That's what I want to see. Right. And I want it to be done by the bad guys, not the good guys. Yeah. And, and not, not the normal people. Yeah. And there isn't really a lot here. You know, when you visit these various towns, it's not like you show up in a town and, and, and everybody goes, oh, this is so terrible. We want to stop this or we're protesting that our leaders thinking of doing this. It's really some of the most reasonable leaders are actually behind this and, and no one's batting an eye. And yeah, I don't I don't love this aspect of it. And I, I would probably change this or either move it away uh, and have different types of sacrifices that they're doing, right? But more along the food and, you know, ice sculpting, whatever, like, you know, something that's, that's, they're, they're caving to the will of oral is psychologically hard enough than to actually be killing off their own people. Yeah. Well, I think we have done an episode of down with D and D tales. Uh, next time we will get into the actual quests cold opens uh, to, uh, starting quests and then each of the 10 towns and the quests that go along with them. I'm excited about uh, that. There's some fun I aspects am, of those quests. I am too. Uh, as I read this, I am more and more looking forward to running some of these and to all our patrons out there. Thank you so much for your support and to our listeners. Thank you for taking the time to spend with us talking about D and uh, If you would like to support the show you can support us on our patre patreon at patreon.com slash mmp or if you are a listener 
please share the good news of Down With D&D on your social media. Speaking of social media, Teos, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, at AlphaStream. I visit the misdirected Mark forums, and you can find me on my blog at alphastream.org. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on those aforementioned forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, now that we have entered Icewind Dale, what are we going to do now? Let's go kill some monsters in a snowbank. It's too cold. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?